It's episode 87 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program is best-selling author and speaker, Scott Birkin. His new book, How Design Makes the World, is just out, and we're going to talk about how to ask better questions of everything we buy, use, and make. Scott, thanks for being on the show. I'm so happy to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been uh, years that we have known each other. I'm <laughs> glad we finally get an opportunity to just sit down and chat for a while. Yeah, we've done a lot of drive-bys at uh, conferences and events and things. So uh, I've been looking forward to this. It should be fun. Yeah, no, that's great. And I am, frankly, I'm thrilled that uh, you have turned your attention entirely to design. Um, I know that's been sort of a, a theme through a lot of your books, but um, but you write pretty broadly about you know innovation and um, creativity and things like that. Uh, so design is the topic this time. It is, and this has sort of been um, something of a white whale for me because I studied design in college. I was a very I was a failed computer science student and I needed something else to study and I had a frantic sophomore year experience where I flipped through the, the entire course catalog for the college to try to find something else that I could do and I discovered <laughs> this thing called design. And even though most of my career was spent as a team leader kind of person, I never it was very rare that I had the word design in my job title. Yeah. It has always been central to how I think about everything from making software to giving presentations and also to writing books. So I knew I always wanted to cover it at some point, and uh, this was finally the right time. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And I want to ask you all about that book. But um, but before we do that, you uh, very sort of presciently about, what, six, seven years ago, wrote a book entirely about working from home. <laughs> yeah, I knew this, I knew this was going to happen. I saw, <laughs> like, uh, I, I knew that someday everyone would have a year without pants, which is the title of the book. I never thought this would be the way that remote work became more popular. Um, yeah. but, but here we are. Yeah, no, I mean, what an acceleration, right? Like, uh, we, we have been slowly kind of creeping towards more distributed teams and things like that. And then all of a sudden, uh, I saw a quote somewhere. I don't even remember who it was as I was looking through the news today that we have sort of, we have done two years of, uh, kind of change management in two months when it comes yes. to this kind of stuff. It's, it's outrageous. Yeah, and a lot of that's been done very poorly. So we're gonna have uh, <laughs> we're gonna have like change management, change management, a meta level of recovery from all the bad change management we've been forced forced to do. Yeah. But um, there's a theory of innovation. Um, um, Thomas Kuhn's book, uh, I forget what it's called now, um, Structures of Scientific Revolutions. I think mm. one subtext of that book is that the real reason why things change and new theories that are better finally get adopted is that eventually the old guard dies. Mm -hmm. And yep. that the, the underlying, I mean, that seems very cynical and very negative, but the underlying assumption is that even people who talk about innovation and change, they're resistant to it. They grew up with one way of, of thinking or working, and it takes some kind of outside event to force them to try something new. And so all these managers now, uh, I live in Seattle, and uh, Zillow is a, a big company here. Yeah. Zillow had always been resistant to remote work. They had been sort of tolerating it on the side, and now they finally come out like very recently and said, you know what, this isn't this isn't so terrible. Uh, we're going to maybe in the future, even after the pandemic, we're going to keep it. And I look at that as like, this is what it takes. You know, this <laughs> is what it takes for people to try something new, even to experiment with something new. I think it's this fascinating other end of uh, our obsession with innovation. Yet at the same time, we're terrified of change, and we we have cognitive dissonance about how we decide what we're even willing to experiment with. 
It reminds me a little of that sort of uh, biological uh, evolutionary theory of punctuated equilibrium, right? This idea that ev that evolution sort of marches on slowly over time, and then there are these cataclysmic events that makes things leapfrog. You know, like uh, all the mammals won because of the big asteroid, or you know, yeah. you know, things like that. Yeah, that's that's great. It's also also we don't like to talk about that. We like to say credit for these. <laughs> things that happened, you know, like we're very proud of our species, but it's kind of like the dinosaurs were kicking our ancestors' butts until <laughs> wiped out, and then there's no one there, and it's like, right. hey, we're amazing. Well, no, we had some, as you're saying, this outside event that um, yeah. was a minor note in history, but really changed changed the landscape. Well, it can give us some optimism that once we're through sort of the the very real hardship that we're in right now, that there is new space to grow. You know, uh, as uh, as we get back to to a world that didn't exist before, so that'd be interesting. Yeah, uh, I I think I think it's good. I think uh, the whole spirit of my Mike's the book I wrote was about working at Automatic, the makers of WordPress.com, and what I learned from them about remote work is that it's uh, a a bunch of it is about trust. If you trust your employees, there's no reason why they can't do work on a screen. Yep. In their office or in their home, they're working through a screen. It doesn't matter where they are. So why not trust them and empower them to have fit that, their work into their life in a way that works best for them and they're still productive. And I think it's a lot of, there's a lot of pain right now because everyone's trying to copy their old work habits yeah, into remote work. Exactly. So everyone's got like meeting overload, <laughs> which is not the right way to do remote work. But I think little by little, they'll figure it out that they just have to delegate more and trust their employees more. And then everyone will be happy. The episode just before this one that we did on this podcast was Lori McLeese from Automatic, head of people over there. Talk, hey, as we hey, were talking okay. about remote work. So uh, Automatic famously sort of uh, one of the leaders and, and possibly one of the biggest companies in the world uh, uh, previous to this uh, doing everything remotely. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about design. You, uh, you started your career kind of in design at Microsoft, didn't you? Sort of. My first job out of college, I was a, I was a user researcher. Uh, I couldn't get hired as an interaction designer because there weren't jobs in 1994 right. really for that <laughs> as much as I wanted there to be. So I started as a researcher, and then in a year I switched to be a project manager or program manager as Microsoft called it. And uh, I was basically doing half my job with design. I was making yeah. prototypes, and uh, the other half of my job was leading developers and doing bug triage and all the other project management stuff, which was great. It was the perfect job for me. I'm very fortunate that that's I ended up there and that they had a role like that. And uh, was was so some of that is sort of the nucleus of then eventually getting to the point where you write a book about design, uh, both for designers and for people uh, who may not know that much about what's going on. Yeah. So as I as I conceived of this book over a long time, I thought that there were definitely two big problems. One is that when designers do a really good job, the work is trivialized. People don't, don't even notice it. They don't even think about right. it because it works so well and so effortlessly that people don't even pay attention to it. And I think designers in general feel undervalued in corporations and also in society. Most people don't know what a designer does. If you say, hey, I'm a designer at a party, they usually think that you're either an interior designer mm. or you're a fashion designer or you're maybe a graphic designer. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with those professions. But in terms of the tech world and the product world, that's just a that's one it's one fr fraction of what designers actually contribute to all these things people make. So I know there's a, a need for a simple book that's it's written in a fun way, it's accessible, that anyone can pick up, a CEO, a coworker, a client, uh, your mom or your dad, that can invite them into this world and looking at the world like designers do. 
So that's one major goal of the book. Right. But at the same time, part of the reason why no one understands in the general world, no one understands design very well, is because of designers. <laughs> designers are not generally very good at explaining and teaching people how to think and look at the world like designers do. Hmm. Designers have a reputation for being a little arrogant, a little uh, off, a little, little shy, a little passive aggressive, and those are not great ways to be an ambassador for a worldview or philosophy or an idea. And so part of what the book does for designers who know about how to think about how to think about um, ease of use or how to think about trade-offs and decision making, it gives them stories and a vocabulary and an approach that they can copy when they're talking to clients or when they're talking to their boss or when they're arguing with an engineer about why it's worth an extra three hours to add this little polish to uh, you know a UI feature that is trivializes being that just makes it pretty. They'll have better arguments for why that can make a big difference in how well the design solves the, the, the customer's problem. That's interesting. So uh, I think that that sort of uh, stereotype or even archetype of the designer as somebody who's a little bit annoying uh, came, so th came through in the book uh, with the joke, <laughs> how many designers does it take to change a light bulb? Does it have to be a light bulb? <laughs> <laughs> which, which is true. And I called it out in the book. Again, I'm, I'm playing both sides in the book. I'm trying to advocate for designers, but I'm trying to give designers some insight into how they tend to be perceived. And that is totally true. Designers are always in the meeting raising their hand. Why can't it be better? Why can't we have an extra day to make it more polished? Why can't we? Why can't we? Why isn't it? And um, that's a tremendous asset yeah. in problem solving. It's also tremendously annoying when it's done <laughs> in the wrong way at the wrong time. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's both ways. Yeah, but uh, it is about asking the right questions. And I think that's uh, – you have sort of structured the book as just kind of progressively like, let me give you another question that can empower you as a designer to uh, hopefully start a conversation about making the work better. Right, making yeah. the product better and things like that. Um, and in many ways, I was kind of envisioning like that typical scene of being in the conference room and somebody said, "Hey, you designer, can you design this?" And the answer <laughs> is not yes or no. Right. The, the answer is these questions that come back that uh, I think you have articulated really well. So, so uh, maybe we could just list those uh, questions first and then talk through some of those. Sure. Uh, the four questions are number one is what are you trying to improve. The second question is, who are you trying to improve it for? Then the third question is, how do you ensure along the way during the project that you're actually successful at solving this, at improving this thing for the person you're trying to improve it for? Then the fourth question is, who might be hurt by your work now or in the future? Oh, that's great, right? That's a, that fourth question is pretty, it feels pretty new, doesn't it? It's a curveball. It's uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to force ethics into yeah. every design conversation. Yeah, 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 so yeah. A, the sort a, of should we really do this, right? Like pause and step back and say, like, all right, bigger picture. How does this fit in? But we'll get to that fourth question. Let's start with the first one, uh, and and that is, what are you trying to improve? Which is really like, what's the goal here? Yeah. So the, I was taught in my all my all the good managers I had for making products and things at Microsoft, we, we use a different phrase. We, we taught, we would use the phrase, uh, what problem are you trying to solve? Yeah, exactly. But, um, and that fits my own sensibility, but there's something negative in that connotation. So I went with, what are you trying to improve? And the thing I imagine for the power of this question 
is that in any creative environment where you have engineers and even designers and maybe even managers or executives, there's always all these ideas that bounce around and people get really engaged and inspired when you're in this idea space. Oh, we could make it so it does this and it adds, it creates this other thing. And, and there's a joy in that free run when you're coming up with new stuff, yeah. but it's very easy to lose the plot and forget that when you invent all these things, there's going to be an actual person who has an actual need. That's why they bought your product or they subscribe to your service that they need to get solved. And that gets lost all the time. And that explains why we have so many products that have so many features where it seems like, well, this is kind of an interesting thing, but really right. what I need to do is uh, finish this document so I can go home. Right. <laughs> I don't, I don't, this thing is cool, yeah, it's a fun visualization, but I have a really fundamental problem right now, and this product is not solving it for me. So that first question has to be in the heart of every conversation about every generative conversation. We are talking about, we have these five ideas, which one should we pick? Well, wait, what are we trying to improve? Now let's go back to those five ideas and we can rank them on how well those ideas are actually going to solve this particular problem. And the answer to that question kind of cuts through the different silos of an organization, doesn't it? Right? Like, are we trying to improve our gross margin? Are we trying to improve uh, the or uh, reduce the number of calls to customer support? Are we trying, you know, uh, on and on, uh, as well as kind of mapping to the needs of users? For sure. Yeah. The thrust of it in the early chapters of the book is about improving things for the actual end user, but it slices it through. You could say, you know what? Our goal this this year is to reduce costs. We want to improve our ability to be efficient about spending money. Okay. If that's the goal, right. then clarify the goal. We can now brainstorm and come up with ideas. We're all focused on what the goal should be. But way too often in all the product teams I've been on and all the ones I've consulted with or visited with, there's a lot of rambling and people forget the plot. Yeah. about really what, what the goal is. And that is kind of a good role for the designer, somebody who is perhaps professionally empathic, right? That sort of let's not forget uh, what we're doing and who we're doing it for. For sure. And uh, they sit a little bit aside from engineering usually and a little bit aside from business usually. So they have a more, they can have a more rounded perspective assuming that they um, can express that in a productive way. So what you're saying is they sit by themselves and nobody knows what they do. Got it. <laughs> All right. I got it now. <laughs> uh, that could be what happens. Hopefully that isn't what happens. But that's, that could right. Be what happens. that's right. Let's take a little break uh, and uh, talk about one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. Do you have a website? And does your website have a shopping cart, registration form, or a contact us page, or anything like that? If you answered yes to these questions and you totally need Pingdom, nobody wants their critical web transactions to fail. That means a bad user experience for everybody coming to your website and could mean a lot of lost business to you. The good news is you can set up transaction monitoring with Pingdom. Transaction monitoring will alert you when your cart checkout or your forms or your login pages fail before they affect your customers and your business. Pingdom will let you know the moment any of these fail in whatever way is best for you. You can customize how you're alerted, who is alerted, uh, depending on the outage severity. Pingdom cares about your users having the smoothest site experience possible. And if disaster strikes, you'll be the first to know. It's super easy to get started. Just go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM. Go there right now. Get a free 14-day trial. You don't even need to put your credit card in. It's not required. When you do sign up, you can use the code PRESENTABLE at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. That's pingdom.com slash RelayFM. 
Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, great. So uh, we've talked a little bit about asking the team what it is we're trying to improve, right? To find the problem, understand what our goals are. The second question, though, who are you improving it for? Kind of brings a user-centered angle into this, doesn't it? We have this habit. It's a natural habit for, for ordinary people to have of when we have an object that we like that solves a problem for us, we attribute the goodness to the object. If I have a car that I like, oh, mm. this is a great car, or a pair of sneakers, oh, it's a great pair of sneakers. But we take out of the equation that a different person might have a different experience with that car or pair of sneakers. So I wear a size 10 and a half shoe. Um, I play basketball. Well, I used to play basketball all the time. Hopefully, I'll play basketball again. <laughs> um, those sh- the shoes I wear fit me great. They are a great pair of sneakers. But if I gave them to my friend who is six five, who's much taller than me, uh, about maybe about your size actually, yeah, Jeff, yeah, uh, who's a much bigger person, he probably has bigger feet. My shoes would be terrible for him. He could not fit into them. So the goodness of an object or a design or anything, it has to be couched or framed around. Wait a second, it's good for who? In what situation? And too often when people are making things, they're so focused on the hard work of making a thing. And even if they're doing a good job and they they know the first question, they are trying to improve something about the world for some group of people, but they're forgetting how much difference there is in people's behavior and needs. And so they create a solution that would work great if you're six foot five, but not very good if you're my size, five, nine, five, ten. And so it has to be wrapped up in the same – it has to be a major part of the same conversation when you're, you're thinking generatively, okay, we want to improve X. We want to improve it for this group of people in these situations. And now you can start having a conversation where you're reviewing ideas because you put it into a, a real-world context. Trying to have that conversation with an executive, with somebody sort of uh, up at the higher levels of an organization, so often the answer that you get back is that everybody should have this product. Right, which is which is a – terrible trap. <laughs> and I, th- I think you know it as well. It's a terrible trap. In the, in the abstract, that's, that's great. That's a nice ambition. You want to help the world be better at whatever your product is going to do. You want to make messaging easier for everybody. As an abstract, trumpet, blaring kind of goal, that's fine. But when, again, getting back to you could, you could, that executive could say, we want to make the best sneakers for everybody. Fine. But everybody is divided up into a, a spectrum, a bell curve of how big their feet are. Right. So you're going to have to divide everybody into some kind of groupings so you can attack the problems differently. You're going to design a shoe differently if it's a size 4 than if it's a size 12. That may even have implications for how the shoes are produced. You may need a different machinery to produce a size 4 shoe. That, so that problem has to be divided down. And it might not be the executive's job to do that, but it's certainly the VP of product's job, sure. the VP of design's job, and the people who work for them to take that big goal and divide it down in ways that can be studied. How, are, how does the size of shoes affect, going to affect our design problems, going to affect our engineering, and make it actionable down at the project level? But to say for everybody, sounds great, but it has to be followed up with some kind of practicality. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I guess even you could say like there's a company like Apple and they literally want every, literally every human in the world to have one of their phones. But at the same time, right, the strategy and the way you do that is going to be very different in India and China and the United States and, uh, and things like that. So there's probably a lot of different ways to break that conversation up. Um, interesting. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, one other slice mentioning Apple is the whole 
the industrial design world, which is a terrible name for that whole discipline. It's, it's. They're basically people who make products, and phones are now the, one of the most popular kinds of products. Industrial design is that subdiscipline of design. They've known for decades about how you, you break down, if you want to design a shoe or a phone or a, a car steering wheel, that there are there's rich data about the spectrums and ranges of people's the size of people's fingers and the range of motion. And they can break a big problem down, like making a phone that's comfortable in as many people's hands as possible mm. and actually study it. There's analytics and engineering and science that allows you to do that. But you're never going to investigate that if you're forgetting that you're not just designing for yourself. And that's the, the tech trap we always see about the engineer and the executive and the founder of a company. They're often so busy, they fall back on allowing themselves to be the real audience for the product. And if they're lucky... They hit on a problem where the way they experience it is similar to the way everyone else does, and they have something that's going to be marketable and successful. But far more often, they haven't realized how much different their own body and perception and needs are from the rest of the, their client base. And that's why a lot of these products that seem cool just fail. They, yeah. were not in, they were not really constructed in a way that could even be approachable or solve a problem for anybody else. No, I remember the story of Apple Maps launching, right, when they needed to sort of get Google Maps off of their phone and uh, as a default. And uh, uh, that just the outcry of like, it's terrible where I live. And, and an executive, I can't remember which one, but, but being in the media going, yeah, you know what? It worked really well in Cupertino. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. I have not heard that one before, but yeah, that's a perfect all the, Yeah, All the streets are in a grid and, you know, there's like, <laughs> it, was, it, it worked fine for them driving around in their Mercedes. And then you try to get in the central London and like nothing is working. But, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of a problem there for a mapping project. Unless everybody can move to Cupertino. Like then that's another way to solve the problem. That's right? true. There's, there's an alternative. You had this very interesting chart when it, when it comes to thinking about who we're making something for sort of a bell curve of people's uh, people uh, on the one axis and then their abilities on another oh. axis, right? Yeah, and, so that chart, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 I, I was just going to say, it's really interesting to see that like so many products are designed for where the designer is and everybody's smarter than them or more yeah. capable, I guess is, is the word. It, it could be, you know, physically or, or anything, but, but that little trap we get into of not thinking of, uh, of just the diversity of people there are. That chart, Microsoft produces great guide to design inclusivity. And that chart is from them. It's, you can find it on their website, it's like a 10 page document that has all this information about how to avoid this kind of a trap. Yeah. And that chart comes from them. And I thought that chart did a great job of just showing if you're designing for what you know, and the people like you, who are often not going to be, if you're at a tech company, it's not going to be super diverse, not going to be super diverse by age, not going to be super diverse by gender. So most of the people around you, you're gonna, you can go down the hall and say, hey, try this out. It's going to be a limited group of exposure. And um, you don't know what you don't know unless you read a book like this, you talk to someone about inclusion. You have to go out of your way to find examples that are really far more representative than you think that they are. That requires effort. You're going to tend to design things for yourself and for people like you, and you're not going to know it. Uh, the classic examples of like voice recognition systems that don't work with female voices because all of the designers were men, or exactly. uh, or the soap dispenser that doesn't work with dark skin. You know th those yep. sorts sorts of things throughout the book, sort of talking talking about this more the sense of inc uh, inclusivity. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's see. Where are my questions? We are up to how do we know that we're doing it right? Are we making the right choices? How do we know? How do we know? It's easy. 
It's easy. Um, it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> it is not easy. It is not easy. I'm just thinking of all the projects I managed that, uh, ones that were more waterfall based where there were longer projects, ones that were more incremental based. There's so many different kinds of challenges that we all face when building something. Those could be engineering challenges, budget challenges, political challenges within your organization. It's so easy to get distracted from making sure that you're still answering those first two questions. It seems obvious that you'd always remember, but you get hung up on, on just putting out fires and fixing stuff. You need some way that you're going to repeat the loop of asking yourself, wait, wait, let's stop for a second. We've been arguing about this for an hour. What are we trying to improve here? Who are we trying to improve it for? And bring yourself back to that. And so most of the working world, I mean, iterative design and agile methodologies is, is super popular now uh-huh. in the tech world. But in the rest of the world, it's, it's pretty foreign. No, nobody in general thinks of themselves working that way. And so a lot of what designers have to convince other people of is that, well, actually, there's another problem in there, too, that often these agile methods that have these loop cycles, they don't lend themselves to allowing designers to do their best work. There's not a lot of room in there for the design iterations that need to happen. So the focus of that part of the book was just clarifying that you need some kind of a loop. You need some kind of a loop when you're doing any creative work. And it could be, even if you're a writer like me, the creative loop everyone knows about writers is you write a draft. I write a complete draft that someone can read end to end. It's going to, by, de- by deliberate intention, it's going to have flaws. <laughs> it's going to have problems. But there's going to be a loop. I'm going to finish the draft. I'm going to give it to people to read. I'm going to get feedback. And then I'm going to start the loop over. I'm going to ask myself, wait, what am I doing this for? What are the goals of the book? Where, where are the weaknesses? I'm going to do the loop again and again and again. And looping is just inherent to any kind of work where you are dealing with situations you have not dealt with before. So if you're doing version one of a product, it's great. It's new. Version two is also you're doing new stuff. You're going to be doing loops there again. And so the, the notion of looping and having these checks that you're doing and the context of design and interface design one simple kind of loop is usability studies, where you've done all this work and you want to periodically, not at the end. Not, I always hate the term usability test. Yeah. It sounds like it's a it's like a final exam. Pass fail. Like the pa- pass fail <laughs> at the end. No. If you're looping, you want to periodically, once you have a rough prototype together, put it in front of a few people and watch. You're going to learn some information. You're going to redesign some things. You're going to decide, you know what? We're not trying to improve X. We're trying to improve why. Okay. We're not going to design for everybody now. We're going to design for people who have size eight to 10 shoes. Okay. Do a loop, get more information. And that is something that many people are just resistant to that. The, the cl- one cliche about designers is that clients who are new to design, they hire a designer and the designer comes back with a bunch of different alternatives and they say, well, I don't want to see alternatives. Just design one, like make it good. You're a designer. Why should you need multiple attempts? And the goal of this question is to no, you do because you're going to learn more about your problem and the value of the alternative solutions you have by repeating this process. It's really, it's interesting. Um, I was just having a conversation with my son who just had to go through, before all of this went through a set of testing for this next round of education, and I was asking him like, "Hey, how's school been going lately?" He's like, "Well, we're doing writing, and I like it so much more because it's not writing for an exam where I just have to sit down and write, but I get mm-hmm. to like I write something, I give it to the teacher, and she gives me feedback, and then I write it again, and then she gives me more feedback." And I was like, "Aha! You could, you could. <laughs> turns out you could love writing." He's like, "I know, this is great." <laughs> he really liked that idea of iteration, and it was sort of like I saw the little light bulb come on for the first time in a ten-year-old. You know, like, wait a minute, it doesn't have to be perfect the first time you do it. 
that sort yeah. of thing. So, um, oh, if we could if we could instill that in all the ten year olds, I think <laughs> I think the world would be a lot better. But what about the thirty year olds and fifty year olds? We got to instill that in them too. Well, didn't you say that eventually they'll just all die? That's true. That's, so that's true. That, that's, no, that, that's one way it could go. I'm hoping that we can do better. <laughs> I think I'm so. hoping. I think so. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. In the, in the beginning of the book, you talk about uh, design as being concerned with a type of quality. And, and so much of that like, iterative process goes way back in the, in the discipline of quality from like manufacturing processes from sort of yeah and kind of like from the end of world war ii i think was was where like a lot of these systems sort of came out and said like now wait a minute we can be very systematic about reducing defects as things come off of uh automated systems right uh and and i'm really interested in that uh uh in my whole career I have been around how we do that with our digital products, how, how we do that both quantitatively and qualitatively, everything from how can we identify and fix bugs to how can we make sure things are, uh, uh, discoverable and intuitive, uh, for, for the right people at the right time. And all of that in a very qualitative sense. So uh, I appreciate that being as one of your pillars. Yeah. What was one of the hard things in this book, the book is very short. It's maybe 200 pages. It's a two-hour read. There's lots of images in there. And that was a major design goal, to write mm. a book that can be this fun introduction to anybody. It has to really be really tight. And I spent a bunch of time in my own loops in this book <laughs> of uh, spending a lot of time talking about quality. I thought that that's really what design is about. It's about achieving quality. And there's different approaches and methods for how you measure it. And then as I went through the drafts and got feedback, I ripped almost all that out. The only, the only part of that is the only part that's left is still in the beginning because I think that a lot of people don't understand the difference between good design and bad design and why you pay more for it because you pay more for almost any kind of quality. If you go to the gas station, uh, I need to work on some new examples here because no one goes to the gas station right now. <laughs> but but when, you, <laughs> right. when you go to the gas station, there's premium gas. Premium gas costs more than regular gas. Why? Because it has a higher octane level, which for certain engines is just better gas. You, you, we exp it's natural in the world, the world of consumers and businesses, you're going to pay more for higher quality. And so the first argument for me whenever I had to argue with an executive or even an engineer about why, um, why design mattered, I would explain, look, this is the kind of quality. Do you want this to be easy to use? And everyone says, yes, of course we do. Well, you're going to have to put in either more time, more money. Or allow someone like me who has more expertise to have more control over the decisions. If we want more quality, we're going to have to pay for it in some way. Now, if we don't want quality, and this is where designers, I think, can learn something, hmm. they always have the argument and belief that higher design quality is always the right choice. And that's not true. Sometimes the goal for a product, given who you're designing it for, they may want a budget product where they do want it to work well, but they're not really looking for a premium experience. That's fine. But for a designer to talk about design, shifting it to quality is usually a, a much more reliable argument. Engineers care a great deal about quality. And often business executives care a great deal about quality too, at least their, their sense of it. So that word is usually a great word for shifting a conversation as to why something is valued instead of designers constantly using the D word. Right. Design is important. Design is important. Design is – no. The more you say that, the less anyone's going to think it's actually important. You have to shift to some other – kind of language that's great it's also i think in a way uh a an answer back to that but we're already customer centered we're customer centered we always have been right 
yeah, that's a, that's a joke I make in the book of uh, anyone can say that. That you can say that for free. There's there's no there's no um, FBI going around checking your customer centricity level and giving you a deploy a degree, you know, a certificate or something. Right. Everybody thinks that they're customer centric, which is almost never true because if you're a corporation, at least a large part of your charter is to make profit, and you're making profit because someone is giving you money. So if you really want to be customer centric, you'd be a nonprofit of some kind. You'd be giving things away. You'd be <laughs> uh, that whole notion to me is um an, uh, the, uh, the term that I chose to anchor in the book is design theater. I didn't come up with the term. Oh, I don't yeah. know who did, but so much of the the terminology that is popular around design, ease of use, intuitive, customer centric, is really meaningless. And it's used mostly by people who want to seem like they have knowledge on these subjects, but no one ever challenges them. My first job I mentioned was user research. So I know all about what ease of use technically means. It's something you have to evaluate by comparison. I can't say these pair of shoes are easier to use without comparing it to something else. It's implied. It's easier to use. It implies there are things in the world that are hard to use. But you can't really say that about your, your web browser or your email client. Well, it's easy to use. It's really just a marketing term. Yep. Unless you're sitting down to say, our email client, when people are new to it, it takes them 30% less time to learn how to do basic, basic behaviors. Okay. You have to do the work to show that. That's easy to use compared to something else. Yeah. So yeah. I, I spent a lot of time debunking that both for the general audience, but also to arm designers with ways to call bull on, pe on people who use that as a way out of an argument. Well, this is going to be easy to use. No, you have to, you have to, you can't just say that this is intuitive. No, you can't intuitive for you. Maybe intuitive for everybody. Uh, you can't just say that. Uh, I, I like that, uh, taking that and shifting that into a conversation about investment in quality, I think, is uh, – it really diffuses the whole situation, doesn't it? Well, it can. The, the only risk there, though, and I think this is just a maturity for designers thing, is again, sometimes high-quality design is not really the right choice for a product. It's just not. And uh, most designers, they go into studying design because they think design is the most important thing, and that's their job, and that's great. They are providing a function. But part of why designers can be so frustrating is they don't realize when for a particular feature or a particular product or a particular release, let's say, the, the most important thing is not design. It's something else. Interesting. Taking quality as a choice that we can make as a team or as an organization. Like let's choose what level of quality that we're going to uh, target. For this, it yeah. might be, look, uh, we're in the business, like you said, making shoes and we want to make shoes for, for, uh, $12. Yeah. You know, <laughs> or, uh, or another example, I'm staring at my, my router, which drives me crazy. It's, it works great. It's reliable, but it has all these blinky lights on it. <laughs> like, and, and I have this, I have this, this, uh, this, um, what's the right word? I have this, um, <laughs> this great hatred for electronic devices that blink for no reason. There's no reason for it to blink. It's like they had they wanted to do the engineer just hey let's let what can we do if it's fun let's make it blink okay so I have hard I have hard drive portable hard drives and my router all these blinky lights now I as a UX user experience expert I could write a blog post or tweet about how stupid it is that these things have blinky lights and how how all the principles that it breaks because there are plenty yeah. If this router didn't have blinky lights, would it impact their sales at all? Probably not. Yeah. 
probably not. That's not why you buy a router. You buy it because it's reliable. It's it fits where you need to put it, and you don't have to worry about it. That's the that's how you sell, and that's the that's the quality for a router that probably matters. Now, a designer might argue, okay, if you had a router that didn't just have not blinky lights, but was styled better, and maybe was easier when you had an issue, it was easier to maintain, and you could pitch that as a marketing strategy, uh, maybe. Maybe, but that would be sort of like the Apple of routers. That's a, that's a particular market fit for that kind of yeah. product, for that for a specific audience who probably charge more, so you have lower market share. Uh, that's possible for sure, but that's not the common case for what per, certain kinds of products, the basis of how they are bought and sold. And um, that awareness of that, I think, is something all designers should understand. It makes them far more effective in getting what they actually want yeah. if they can articulate in the context of you're using the word quality, which I think is great, that there's other kinds of quality that may matter beyond design quality. That's right. That's great. I love that framing. That's really good. Let's take a little break uh, and we'll be right back. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by the IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint. You know, podcasts have clearly just exploded over the last few years. Uh, there are just so many out there that do such a great job covering just an insane number of topics. I love just browsing around, looking for great new podcasts, finding something amazing, interesting hosts, just digging in. Uh, I do it all the time. I got a whole list of, of new podcasts. I wanted to uh, share with you a new show to listen to. It's called The Intro Zone. It's a biweekly podcast with conversations and interviews uh, on how to use Microsoft SharePoint, OneDrive, and related tech, and how to really make it work for you. Uh, they have a lot of guest experts uh, from behind the scenes and out in the field. So you can see how SharePoint from Microsoft fits into your everyday work life uh, to easily share and manage content, knowledge, applications, whatever your organization needs. Each show has a bunch of segments like uh, news and announcements, a, f a focus topic of the week, guest perspectives, FAQs, all sorts of things. Uh, and so you have an idea of, uh, of what to expect. I wanted to tell you some of the topics that you, that you might be interested that were on previous episodes. They spent a lot of time figuring out how organizations can work together in the most effective way, uh, using intranet tools, to content sharing, collaboration, all that sort of stuff. Uh, they did an episode recently on teamwork and APIs, which I think was just fascinating. Uh, but they've also been talking about quite a bit working from home and how technology has uh, supported and is supporting this unbelievable transition that we're going to, to mo more remote work, more effective remote work, collaborating with each other. Uh, they focus on, of course, you know, SharePoint, OneDrive, and all those technologies, but just good practices, how we're all kind of coping with and dealing with and being more productive uh, using this technology to try to get our jobs done when we're all apart. Uh, so go give it a listen. Just search for The IntraZone wherever you get your podcast, iTunes or uh, Overcast or whatever. Uh, that's IntraZone, I-N-T-R-A-Z-O-N-E. Or just click the link down in the show notes uh, that I've got down there. Go check it out. Our thanks to The IntraZone by Microsoft SharePoint for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, so uh, we're up to the last question. Like the, and it's a hard one. It's a, it's yeah. a really one. Who might be hurt by your work now or in the future? Yeah. Um, this is not one that uh, people get excited about. Right. <laughs> well, the initial response, in all my experience trying to talk to design, designers and engineers and company founders, startup founders, about ethics, uh -huh. it's uh, the first response is um, not, not exactly defensive, but it's always like, no, you don't understand 
my product's going to save the world. Everyone's going to be benefited by this. Right. Everybody. And that's, that's, that's again, this is, it's a good rallying cry. That's part of the psychology you have to have to want to start a company or want to invent a thing is that you're going to make a difference. And that's, you need that. You need that kind of intense optimism. But that's exactly what leads to all of the big ethical failures that we've ever had in the history of technology. And so an earlier book of mine was called The Myths of Innovation. And I dug into the, the true histories of all these inventions and what really happened and how they were invented. And there's a pattern in many of the inventors' stories of their, they, they, they were good at inventing technology, but very bad at thinking about how it would actually be used or the effects it would have. So a, a, one of my favorite examples is the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers had a really hard time selling airplanes that no one wanted them. They didn't fully understand them, so they, they couldn't sell them in the United States. Eventually, they started getting interest from, from the military. This could be a great spy plane. You could a, a great spy device. Yeah. You could fly over the, the – uh, so at one point, the Wright brothers were marketing airplanes as a solution for ending war. <laughs> it would end all war because their technology was so good that no one would see that – no one would have the motivation to fight anymore. Now, of course, we know what happened. You think of the uh, fire bombings of Dresden. You think of carpet bombing in the Vietnam War. Uh, the airplane has been one of the most destructive inventions ever in history. Right. And that's part of what this fourth question is asking, is that at some moment as a designer or a creator, an engineer, a founder, you have to step back or hire someone or engage someone like me. Or there's tons of tech ethicists now who mm -hmm. are better at making these analysis, analyses than I am. And invite them in to go, what's the worst case for this? How, could, what, how would this be used as a William Gibson quote that I love? It's in the book about you have to think for any new technology. How would it be used? I won't get them all. A policeman, a criminal, and then maybe the government? A politician. That's what politician. it was. Like, yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah. Thank you. It's great because that's exactly what most inventors don't do. How would a criminal use this? And then you think of like how would a politician use it? We, all the social media abuse and how that's become this – incredible engine for misinformation. Zuckerberg uh, at the invention of Facebook and um, all the inventions of all of our social media, that, that was not what they were thinking about. They were never thinking of worst cases. And the burden is on us as designers, especially, and makers, if we care about the next generation, which we all claim to do. We all claim to feel like this is going to change the world and make it better for our children. If you really feel that way, then you have to ask these questions about what happens even if we're successful. The dangers of social media didn't matter if it was just a bunch of computer science students using it. If the dangers once it becomes mainstream and successful, that's where these surprisingly negative effects can arise. And uh, we have to own that. We have to own that, I think. Um, and uh, we're not used to thinking in those kinds of generational terms. I think one of the things about the pandemic, we are starting to maybe think a little bit more that way. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to think beyond five years. That's not a long-term horizon. It's how do we think for the 20-year event, the 30-year event? So that may be a silver lining in all this, but that, that's a long-winded answer to the thrust of the question is that all the downsides to every invention we have, cars and traffic, internet and misinformation, the people who design these things should be held accountable for that. That's part of what their responsibility was. Mm, yeah. I, you know, uh, in my experience uh, from time to time, in my career working at public companies, I just remember my frustration with the the quarterly cadence, right? The quarterly earnings report and having to have the numbers for the quarter. 
And all we ever thought about was, what are we going to do the next three months? Three months, three months. That's all it ever was. And it, uh, uh, and it was, there was no opportunity to step back and, and have some longer term thinking and, and stuff like that. I shouldn't say no opportunity. It's just very <laughs> hard to break out of that kind of cycle and that kind of, sure. you know, like what's yeah. next, what's next. Oh my God. Yeah. It's the antithesis. It's if you were trying to make a metric that empowered people at every level of an organization to think long-term quarterly earnings would be one of the worst ones. It's just your super short term, like three months. If you're thinking in quarters, then you're really thinking in like months because you're trying to get a good result for the quarter. So you need strong leadership that can counterbalance against often it's the board of directors. And this gets into like organizational design about how you design an executive staff that is honors whatever commitments it has to, to stockholders, but is still able and empowered to make decisions that have short term negative consequences to enable the resources to have long-term good ones. And that's, um, that's, uh, to me, that's also a design problem. And some organizations have tried to solve it in different ways, but um, that's a fascinating thing to think about. How, if you're still a capitalist-centric economy, how do you design organizations that can succeed at balancing the long and the short term? Right, right. I don't know. Yeah, no, the systems are, uh, have uh, felt so fundamental. Uh, that it's hard to it's hard to think that way. Um, that does sort of uh, kind of the last topic I think uh, here that we have time for gets at uh, power in design. Uh, there's a quote here from the book: "What makes good or bad design happen anywhere depends on who has the most power." Yeah, I guess I learned this early in my career. I was a user researcher, so I, I did studies, I wrote reports, I gave advice. That was my job, and I found it. Frustrating. Yeah. Uh, other researchers loved it because they felt like, look, I gave them my advice. I told them what was good or bad, and I got to go home. <laughs> and I felt the opposite. I felt like, no, this is wrong. This is bad. And I became what I became an annoying kind of researcher. And that was part of what motivated me to become a project manager because at Microsoft, it was the project management role that had far more decision making power. So I switched to be a, a program manager. And then I'd work with designers and designers didn't have as much power. I tried to lend as much of my power to them as I could. But the fundamental structure in that culture was power goes to the PMs and goes to the engineering managers and then goes to the executives. And so one thing that designers aren't taught in design school is that they're not going to be working alone. They're not going to be working with other designers either. So they're going to be in situations where they're not the decision maker. Design hinges on being able to make decisions. You, you can't design a thing if you, like, you can't even make like a, like a gift, like a, a, um, a greeting card in Photoshop. <laughs> if you can't make decisions, All right. you have, to, that's the fun. And I think that's where designers struggle is they don't know how to manage their, their need to have decision-making authority in cultures where that's not granted to them. Right. And, um, so the, the book, uh, the book focuses on how many things in our ordinary lives, like frustrating traffic patterns or parking lot um, meters that are terribly designed. It's not really because the designer who did it, it was their fault. They were working for someone powerful who controlled what resources they had, who controlled what the criteria were, who decided who they were going to design for and uh, what was important. And the designer shows up and is given requirements they can't change and has to fulfill them. And that means that really if a designer wants to have an impact on the world, they have to get good at persuasion or they have to get good at influence and obtaining some kind of power in the decision-making structure where they work. If they don't, then they can do as many amazing things in Photoshop or in 
in Sketch or whatever tool they're using, but the decision maker can veto it all the time and it won't go anywhere. And that is not a message most designers want to hear, but that is human nature in organizations. Mm -hmm. There's only so much decision making authority. It will not be distributed equally like a democracy. So you have to know the landscape of where you work and either gain power or learn how to influence it. Or to be perfectly honest, find a place where you can. Sure. Um, Absolutely. As you point out, there are a number of uh, types of organizations that literally have no incentive whatsoever to invest in design. That they're uh, some kind of like natural monopoly or are historically underfunded, like, for example, parking meters. They're, you know, that's tax dollars that we're going to, uh, there's no competition. There's no reason why we would have to fix any of this stuff. So um, I think it's worthwhile for designers to periodically judge, like, am I ever going to have any uh, any more power to affect the kind of change I want at this organization? I think you're totally right. And there definitely are, there's a growing number of organizations that are either founded by designers or that start with a design, a design, cent- a design mature attitude about how you make quality products and product quality things. That is totally true. But I think um, designers often discover these facts after they've found employment, which they chose for maybe mm-hmm. other reasons, or maybe sure. they didn't have the freedom of that many choices. So you're totally right. And I think um, I also think that designers should start companies, that if they are willing to learn about business and learn about organization and project management, they will inherently bring that design centricity or design maturity into the organization from the beginning. Most organizations start with a powerful person who wants to build something, they hire their first designer as like a side thing, and they, just, they that defines the design culture for that organization. And even if you have a VP of design or 100 designers who join that company, the culture has been decided by someone who didn't really understand design when design was created there. And that's a legacy that can be hard to uh, to overcome. The idea of designers as founders is why my job title is now investor. Yep. That's great. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. How Design Makes the World is the name of the book. Uh, I found a excerpt of the book on your website, so we should at least point people there. But where else uh, should people uh, go to find out more? My website's my name, scottberkin.com, and I'm most active on Twitter, and my handle there is just at Berkin, B-E-R-K-U-N. Fantastic. Scott, thanks so much. This was great. This was fun. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.